0: Sheila McDaniel, Administrator for the National Gallery of Art. Held in conjunction with the Afro-Atlantic Histories exhibition, the Wilmer Ding Symposium has gathered literary and visual artists to reflect on how art responds to and shapes both official and overlooked narratives brought by the transatlantic slave trade and its legacies. The U.S. tour of the exhibition was curated by Kenitra Fletcher, Associate Curator of African-American and afro Diasporic art. Molly Donovan, Curator of Contemporary Art and Steve Nelson, Dean of the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts also served on exhibition curatorial team. The symposium was made possible by a grant from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. This is the second session named in honor of Professor Honoré Fanon Jeffers' phrase I built this altar for them from the poem, Catalog Water, from her book of poetry, The Age of Phyllis, published in 2020. We are so happy to have these amazing presenters as follows. Erica Buddington, educator, MC, poet, and co-founder and CEO of the Langston League. Ms. Buddington is a cultural curator who designs culturally relevant curricula, writes and performs work that reflects on the diaspora, and defies and decolonizes the status quo. After a decade of teaching in the classroom, Ms. Bunnington founded the Langston League, a curriculum firm that specializes in teaching educators to design and implement culturally responsive, instructional material and professional development. Langston League is responsible for the unofficial Black History Lovecraft Country Syllabi, which went viral during season one. She also hosts the YouTube series Decolonized and writes for the Emmy nominated Amber Ruffin Show. Ms. Bunnington is the recipient of the 2017 WeWork Creator Award, Harlem Children's Zone Director and Innovation Award, 4.0 Schools Essential Fellowship, Hampton University's 2019 Notable Hamptonian in Hip Hop, and a Freedom Fellows Institute Fellowship. Nona Faustine is an artist, public speaker, and author of White Shoes. Ms. Faustine is a photographer and visual artist whose work examines contemporary gender and racial stereotypes through a critical focus on history, identity, and representation. Her photographs reclaim and recenter forgotten, erased, and unacknowledged histories of systemic racism in the United States. Ms. Faustine earned her BFA from the School of the Visual Arts an MFA from the International Center of Photography at Bard College, where she began her critically acclaimed series, White Shoes. These self-portraits, which center her mostly nude body in historic sites of slavery around lower Manhattan and Brooklyn, reflect her interest in collective memory and myth-making, as well as representations of the Black female body. From her body sprang their greatest wealth, taken at Federal Hall on Wall Street, the former locations of slave auctions is on view in Afro-Atlantic histories. In her silkscreen series, My Country, Ms. Faustine confronts and interrogates iconic American monuments, such as the Lincoln Memorial and the Statue of Liberty, using her camera to reframe conventional colonialist perspectives and inserting some of the truth and trauma behind these memorialized spaces. This series explores in Ms. Faustine's words, Quote, how history is turned around, what is left out, what is included, what are the lies, and who gets celebrated, end quote. In 2019, Ms. Faustine was the recipient of the Niska NIFA Fellowship, the Colleen Brown Art Prize. The Anonymous was a woman grant and was a finalist in the National Portrait Gallery's Outwin Bochiever Competition. She participated in the inaugural class at Hinde Wiley's Black Rock Senegal Residency in 2020. Honoré Fanon Jeffers, poet, novelist, critic, and professor of English at the University of Oklahoma. for Over 20 years, Professor Jeffers has been lifting her voice on issues of Black culture, racism, American history, and gender through the medium of writing. Professor Jeffers is author of the novel The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. In Oprah's book club pick, Love Songs was longlisted for the National Book Award in Fiction, shortlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize, a finalist for the Perkus Prize in Fiction, and winner of the 2021 National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction. An award-winning poet for most recent collection, The Age of Phyllis, was long listed for the National Book Award in Poetry and won both the 2021 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work in Poetry and the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize from the Academy of American Poets. She is also the author of the poetry collections, The Gospel of Barbecue, Outlandish Blues, Red Clay Sweet, and The Glory Gets. She is the recipient of fellowship from the American Antiquarian Society, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Vermont Studio Center, the Whitbiner Foundation through the Library of Congress, Aspen Summer Words Conference, and in 2021, Professor Jeffers was granted a United States Artist Fellowship. Recently, she was inducted into the Alabama Writers Hall of Fame. Proje- Professor Jeffers is also a Talladega, Talladega College alumni, as am I, <laughs> and it is with great Deegan pride I introduce Professor Jeffers to get us started.
1: Thank you so much. I did not know that I was speaking to a fellow Deegan um, until we were uh, talking in in the in the um, before in the practice session. So this is just a an, a double pleasure to be here. Um, I'm often asked why I chose to include the name of Dr. Du Bois in the title of my novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. Sometimes I give background information, like when I first read him or the fact that I studied him while a student attending first one and then another historically Black college, but the core of it is that at the time that I began writing love songs, I was doing scholarly research on early and 20th century African-Americans. And I would return to Dr. Du Bois's research. What struck me was his deep well of love for Southern Black folks. And I had this same kind of love. It was in a failed short story that I first included the tale of a minor character's encounter with Dr. Du Bois but this character soon stole my heart and I expanded his role in the book. His name was Dr. Jason Freeman Hargrace, also known as Uncle Root, the second great uncle of the novel's protagonist, Ailey Pearl Garfield, and Uncle Root worshiped Dr. Bois. In the excerpt that I will read, Ailey has traveled alone for the summer to her mother's hometown, Chickasetta, Georgia, because her father has had a heart attack and her mother has stayed behind to tend to him. She's not very happy uh, about going it alone. At the arrival gate in Atlanta, Uncle Root walked toward me with open arms. Welcome, Sugarfoot, how's your daddy? I didn't return his embrace. He's fine. Excellent. God is good. Uh Uh-huh. I was determined not to be friendly. Just because I had to go down south didn't mean I had to be happy about it. He took my bags and I trailed him to the parking lot and his long black town car. He unlocked the passenger door and it groaned open. That door is loud, I said. And this car is a gas guzzler. That's the point. Negro men like big cars. We don't believe in conserving energy. After all we've been through, we deserve to be wasteful. Uncle Root laughed, chucking me under the chin. I wanted to laugh too, but wouldn't give him the satisfaction. When he turned on the classical station, the radio man solemnly whispered, it's 99 degrees in the Atlanta metropolitan area before he introduced the flower duet from lock How was your flight Ailey? Like a ride at six flags. I thought I was going to throw up and then die when the plane crashed. I will take that to mean your journey was unpleasant. I leaned against the car window, closing my eyes. Ailey, Did I ever tell you about the time I met W.E.B. Du Bois? You know who that is, right? Can't you just let me take my nap? Uncle Root raised his voice and continued. I entered Rutledge College in the fall of 1922. It was a black college, and I had a professor who loved himself some Du Bois. His name was Mr. Terrence Carter Holmes and there used to be all these rumors he was communist. He loaned me his copy of Dark Water and told me to be careful with it. After that, I just kept borrowing every book by Dr. Du Bois that Mr. Holmes owned. The next fall, there was a rumor on campus that Du Bois would be visiting Atlanta University, the great scholar himself. A friend told me. Robert Lindsay was his name, but we called him Rob Boy. He and I decided to drive to Atlanta. He was from there, so we would stay overnight with his parents. The last thing we wanted was to be caught after dark by some white folks. We woke early that next morning, and after driving in Rob Boy's car with no water or food, we were hungry. We hadn't thought to pack a sandwich or even a bottle of Coca-Cola, but my hunger didn't dim my enthusiasm. I thought about the conversations Dr. Bois and Rob Boy and I would have. We'd let him know that we didn't agree with the bootlicking policies of Booker T. Washington. We wanted to be intellectual, free Negro men, not somebody's farmers. At Atlanta University, we found out where Dr. Du Bois was staying. We ran up the stairs to his building, three flights. I'll never forget it. We knocked and the great scholar answered himself. Uncle Root twisted the radio knob, lowering the volume. I sat up, despite myself, I was interested. It was Dr. Du Bois, for real? Indeed, it was him. He didn't have a lot of hair left. The old man ran his fingers through his thick silver curls. And he was shorter than I was, but it had a way about him. What'd he say, Uncle Root? Yes, he asked. I had to catch my breath. Those stairs had tied me out. We came to see you, Dr. Du Bois. We came to see the great scholar. Well, he said, now you have seen me, and he closed the door in our faces. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Nona Fentine.
2: Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Nona Faustine, and I'm going to share with you the women who have influenced um, the White Shoes series and really is about them and The Women of uh, New York City. Um, The White Shoes series began as a tribute to the enslaved men, women, and children who built New York City. Uh, I go to the five boroughs, including Long Island. And the first one is um, Sarah Bartman. She is not a New York City woman, um, but she is... Um, a Kokoi woman from the 19th century. She was lured from South Africa in, in the 19th century to Europe with the promise of making money um, by two Dutch Dutchmen. And she was put on display as a freak of a freak show. She was a, quite an attraction for her voluptuous, um, full-figured body. And she ha- was exhibited for her uh, voluptuous form um, which was very foreign to to Western um, audiences. Um, she was perceived as a curiosity but was subject you know to this scientific um, racist bias as well as um, erotic projection. and her her story um, is one that influenced me to um, begin the White Shoe Series many, many years before I even knew it was the White, it would be called the White Shoe Series. And um, this image from her body came their greatest wealth, which is hanging in the National Gallery. Um, uh, uh, this, This image on Wall Street, which was one of the first Um, places where enslaved people were bought and sold at the foot of Wall Street. Um, And so they became their first, uh, enslaved men and women became the first commodity um, traded on Wall Street. And the other one, Delia, Delia Taylor, uh, is a woman in 1850, also on a plantation in South Carolina, who um, enslaved, um along with whose image, excuse me, whose image was taken against her will and that of her father and the other enslaved Africans commissioned by Harvard naturalist Louis Agassiz and taken by J. T. Zeely, part of a series of daguerreotypes on the plant on. On the plantation, they were taken, and it was part of racial propaganda to prove visually that Africans were inferior. Um, they were hidden in the attic at the Harvard Peabody Museum and discovered in 1974. And what revealed was the absolute humanity of their of of these human beings, which which is one one of the reasons why they believe they were were hidden to begin with. And so, you know, here begins for me, the White Shoes series, image taken in my home. Um, And this is my my reply to those daguerreotypes that really just sunk themselves into my heart and soul. Um, And Dorothy Angola, she was one of the women that I found her surname that she acquired in the New World was one of the first African women to arrive in the New World. And she arrived in 1627. And that year, three enslaved African women also arrived in the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam, now New York. And those, um, those women were brought to be brought to the colony to become the wives of enslaved African men who had arrived in 1625. Um, when her husband Paulo died, Dorothy went to the court to petition that the land in her husband's name be passed on to their children. Quite an incredible feat. One of the reasons why we know who she is. Um, and this is the land that they were given, um, the land, this is called Dorothy Angolan, Land of the Blacks. The road formerly um, called the Negroes Causeway connected several farms in the Land of the Blacks um, with the settlement located south of the Palisades of the Wall Street. So they were given the land from effectively Canal Street to 34th Street. And I mean, this was just incredible in those times and Manetta Lane is all that remains of that road that once ran alongside Manetta Creek. Um, And the next slide. Uh, These are a series of triptychs that are now acquired by the Brooklyn Museum, um, the Lefferts House within the White Shoes series. This is not Gone with the Wind. This is a house, um, four generations of Dutch, uh, built by enslaved Africans. Uh, The house removed from his original site, a few blocks away from Prospect Park, is now a museum. And this side, Isabel, Isabel was one of the Lefferts um, enslaved. And that, you know, we know that she exists, thank God, because she was listed um, as their property. Um, And this this image is not only in tribute to her, but the women in my family who were, Domestics. My, my grandmother, my great great grandmother Martha, my great great grandmother Dido, um, who after the Civil War is listed on the first census with her husband and her babies um, on a farm and listed as a domestic. And so we know, you know, as in go- lobbying the gods for a miracle, you know that enslaved women often escaped, um, and sometimes they escaped with their babies. Um, and one is such women, Sojourner Truth, the great abolitionist. Um, her home at 74 Canal. Um, she she was a not only abolitionist, women's rights activist. She was born into slavery in Swartzville, New New York, upstate, and she escaped with her infant daughter to freedom and in. 1826, and after going to court to recover her son in 1828, um, she became the first black woman to win such a case against a white man. And she gave herself the name Sojourner Truth. Um, and the, she, she was went on to be an incredible um, public speaker and, ab- and advocate for the freedom of her people. And the next image, um, this is a thirst for complete freedom, had been her only motive for absconding only Judd. And Judd was born about 1773 at Mount Vernon, the state of George Washington, and his family enslaved attendant to Martha Washington, first lady. And she escaped into the Philadelphia night while the Washington's were having dinner after finding out she was to be given to Martha Washington's granddaughter, Elizabeth Park Cuttis Law as a wedding gift. So what a, you know, incredible brave woman. And we know, and she said that to, you know, George Washington hunted his slaves relentlessly. And we are able to know that because they finally tracked her down in New Hampshire, where she was living as a free woman, and she told um, Joseph Whipple uh, that that was her reason for escaping. And then we have resist, and resist is a William Street Maiden Lane. This is one of this. Um, this is the site of the 1712 um, resistance, slave resistance and uh, slave rebellion and resistance, whatever, they did their work. Um, Enslaved African men rose up in a quest for their freedom and ultimately being captured at current day Canal Street, they were put on trial and brutally executed. Among them, a pregnant woman who was allowed to deliver first and before being killed, we um, we know wherever there is resistance injustice, and revolution, you can find a woman. And getting down to the last few um, of my body, I make monuments in your honor. This is the Flatbush Dutch Reform Cemetery in Brooklyn, pre-revolutionary. And in the all white uh, cemetery are three enslaved Africans deemed special enough to be buried there. Uh, And two of them are women and one of them named Flora, and they they are on the list of interred. And Martha Peterson, Her story was so incredible, it was made into a PBS documentary called Lady in the Iron Coffin. And she was found in Elmhurst, Queens, which was Newtown, after um, when construction workers set to build an apartment complex, dug a backhoe into the soil in October 2011, and pulled up her remains um and they were absolutely shocked they thought they found a a murder a recent murder victim um she was buried in an elaborate expensive iron coffin and she died at the first half of the 19th century before the civil war and the federal abolishment of slavery um she yes and so um this is the cemetery of African-American people um, that was once Newtown, now called Elmhurst, Queens, once the location of an African Methodist Episcopal church and burial ground. And her story is is quite interesting, as is this site. Um, It it absolutely broke my heart. And the last two slides, this is um, Maria Lyons and her husband, which you don't see here, Albro Lions were the prominent New Yorkers before the Civil War. And it is believed they lived in Seneca Village and uh, born in 1825. The Seneca Village was the free African-American community that owned the land in what is now Central Park before it was taken away from them through eminent domain to create the park. And a strong, prosperous community that built homes, schools, churches, cemetery. Um, You see here down at the bottom, her two daughters, Marchita and Pauline. And Marchita would go on to co-found one of the first women's rights and racial justice groups in the country. And here I am in Seneca Village Central Park. Um, This piece is called I Like My Tea with Play-Doh. And I'm wearing... Um, a textile from Senegal. And in my research, it was believed that some of the descendants um, were were from Senegal. Um, Not proven, but also I found um, in my family's history on my father's mother's side, we are descendant um, from Senegal, the Mandika people. So this was quite incredible like a link of histories. And so that ends my my um, my time and I would like to introduce Erica Buddington. Thank you.
3: Um, hello everyone. Um, I'm really excited, especially after Nona's presentation because I'm seeing the through lines even with Professor Jeffers as well. And so I think that's extremely important um, for you to see how our work is so connected. Black enclaves, making the inaccessible accessible Um, I'm gonna take, let's take one minute and read this together. This is a clip from the New York Times archive from July 9th, 1856. The old reservoir covers 35 acres. Its architecture is by no means elegant and we hope some improvement will be made in it before the park is finished. The ground in this vicinity is very high and from a rocky promontory which juts out into the water, another fine view is presented. West of the reservoir within the limits of the central park lies a neat little settlement known as, and I will let you read that last, those last two words. Um, So I'm gonna move your attention away from this and read you something else. I wonder if a child has made a snow angel on a black body, flailing their arms in innocence the way the ancestors did before they gave up their homes, don't shoot. At the tip of percussion rifle muskets, a New York Times article in 1856 reads, it is hoped that their removal will be affected with as much gentleness as possible. Is swift spelled like sanitize. Does it wash away a generation in the middle of the night with hidden reparations? Does it bury its secrets in broad daylight? Son, they found someone's black child in 1871. Quote, laborers found a coffin of an Negro boy while digging trees, end quote. Is this because there are no poplar trees in Central Park? The earliest report of one was in 1811. Because we outdate the cottonwoods that turned us into strange fruit. Did you know that peanuts grow underground? George Washington Carver did. The plant is a foot tall and each root finds a place to settle growing safety around the seeds of their labor for harvest. They must be uprooted at just the right time. Ho! if not the pods stay in the ground, how many times are they finna uproot us before we ripe? They slapped the equivalent of a Black Lives Matter mural on Seneca Village, each memorial sign rounding the death and eviction toll to the nearest number, and you can have a picnic, water, and wine on our graves. The wall from a reservoir that replaced a Black settlement is now the open red brick aesthetic in Central Park Precinct's conference room. I guess Black folks have been supporting the state long before we were interred time and time again. We are cultivating your park grounds, keeping them bountiful, they say. We built this country, Benjamin Banneker's myth, but we are this country, in this country, fist cemented in the soil, because long after we stop breathing, they walk on our Mm -hmm. minds. This is a poem I wrote while sitting on a bench in Central Park, close to the patch of land once known as Seneca Village, or York Hill, or Pig Town. Seneca Village was not the only village eradicated in Central Park when the government and journalists decided that we, New York City should have a large park like all those, all the rage in Europe, and that the city, quote unquote, needed lungs, lungs, breath. I imagine the Black people who fled to the grounds between West 82nd and 80, West 89th from Lower Manhattan because they were being discriminated against, tortured, hung, their properties burned, stacked on top of one another in tenements. I imagine for them, it was hard to breathe. And then they found the space away from the chaos, surrounded by birchwood and stillness where they could cultivate land, build churches, teach their children, and bury their dead with honor. An area of the city sparsely populated at this point, a place where they could breathe. The same day I wrote that poem, I was preparing to teach a class of over 56th grade children. Two cohorts, 25 children in each one, were merged together under the guise of a humanities class in the parent newsletter, is what they called it. The truth was many of the educators left the school after the first quarter. Frustrated at being micromanaged, constant pushes to overtest children, and a lack of reflection of students and themselves within the curriculum. I had to teach both an English and history class, and the teacher's lounge turned into a classroom to accommodate the whole group. The lounge faced Central Park, and the students often asked me what was not in the mandated curriculum. Since you're the history teacher now, tell us what was there before Central Park. And I decided in that moment that I would teach my students about Seneca Village another nearby black and integrated enclaves for a few lessons damn the mandate i was going to do it smack dab in the middle of ancient civilizations after all were we not learning terminology connected to what the in, to what inhabitants lived and endured key vocabulary like migrate afterlife, and the myths migrate Were thriving african farmers not actually evacuate what is now washington square park for a potter's field intended for their bodies were black inhabitants not forced to migrate from lower manhattan because they feared for their lives did they not migrate to newtown now elmhurst black dublin now flushing and upstate because they were evicted from the park did they not build foundations wherever they went watching next generation sprout from their labor until they were moved again is that not migration or the word afterlife did we not believe in a higher power Did we not thrust ourselves into the ocean, hoping our spirit would find its way home? Did we not build our own churches with our hands and welcome all in the same palms? Did we not place our loved ones in African burial grounds with rings and scars and coins, hoping our people would have what they needed in the afterlife? Or or the word myth. Had people not treated us like we were one? Like we did not exist everywhere you stepped in the city? Like fragments of our innovations, compassions, and proof of purchase were not buried deep in the soil and the archives? It was all true. And so I started my next class like, I'm going to continue this presentation for you today. I want to talk about Black enclaves in the archives. An enclave is a portion of a territory within or surrounded by a larger territory whose inhabitants are culturally or ethnically distinct, but make it Black though. I wanted to teach my students about the Black enclaves thriving in New York City and this nation in the physical and in memory I had trouble finding much of the information I needed for them to understand the whole story. And this is what led me to this work. This is what led me to the archives. Still, a history educator. I traversed the nation and spent hours and hours in libraries, museums, historical societies, collections of this and that, and any digital space I could type my way into. I found primary sources that the class could analyze. Here are ancestors in their own words, I collected artifacts for students to see, feel, touch. I downloaded patents so we could reconstruct them together while saying, we made this, we made this, we made this. But even then, sometimes the archives are not in conversation in a way that allows for full comprehension. So I made them speak to one another, placed them in chronological order, underlined names and antiquated terms, visited the spaces they mentioned, like Nona, took photos, took intricate notes as I spoke to descendants, pulled narratives, hopes, and lineages from census records, receipts, deeds, and birth certificates, held and told stories knowing they were mine and not mine all at once, but I needed to keep them safe. So I hid them out in the open. And here is how. Through curriculum, I own a company called Langston League. Um, we are a multi-consultant firm that specializes in culturally affirming instruction for students. And this is, a, these are snapshots from a series we have called Decolonized, which is free and accessible for anyone on YouTube, where I teach young kids, middle school, elementary students, how to analyze primary sources that I found within the archives or the syllabuses we make that are supplemental for your television show or your film that you're watching with all those themes and history, Easter eggs that you want to unpack. I also write using these archives for television. For Amber Ruffin show, Amber Ruffin talks about uh, drowned towns, how man-made lakes were created all over the nation and folks don't know many towns are underneath those spaces. Um, reparations owed to us. I talk about that in this work as well. On social media, I bring the archives forward through Instagram stories, bringing attention to things that were buried deep and that folks should know much more about. I do the the same work in viral threads, talking about the displacement in New York or in DC or in Philadelphia or in Baltimore or all across this nation that is reoccurring and not just history, but it's happening right now. And I also do this through my art and through my poetry, as you heard in the beginning. And so now I have the opportunity to make these archives accessible in a multitude of ways many ways for multi-generational learners to access these stories, these truths. And I've come a long way from the question, well, since you're the history teacher, tell us what was there before it was Central Park. I'll be honest, I was anxious about stepping away from the classroom because I'd been there for almost 15 years. And then a friend and I sat together in Central Park as I handed in my resignation at the end of the year moving on to different work. And she said, it's not the world, your classroom now. Thank you.
0: Thank you all so much. Amazing, I'm so full. Um, again, Professor Jeffers and I are dega alum. Ms. Faustine, I believe I heard you say in an interview that your first museum exhibition was at the Studio Museum in Harlem, <laughs> where I worked for years before joining the National Gallery of Art. Miss Buddington, I have to tell you, the first poem in my first poet I ever learned in grade school from a teacher was a Langster Hughes poem, I too sing America. Yes, <laughs> I can still recite it. <laughs> I'm feeling very special right now that my histories are intersecting with all of you amazing women. I thought I'd begin the Q&A session with a few questions that came to mind in preparing for this session. So my first question, I'm actually going to give to um, all three of you. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston said that, quote, research is formalized curiosity. It is poking and prying with a purpose, end quote. Can you tell us or expand upon how historical research is part of your creative process and purpose?
1: My work has always been informed by um, the archives um, in some sort of way. Now it's it's very overt. Um, But when in my first... um, uh, Book of Poetry, the Gospel of Barbecue. I have these uh, poems um, that are based upon uh, uh, things that I read, um, but I sort of um, make them anonymous. Like there's a there's a poem about uh, that I wrote in response to Aretha Franklin's uh, version of Mary, don't you weep, the traditional spiritual. And, um, and I, and I think about the people who sang the spirituals Um, as I've grown, I'm in my fifties now um, uh, I spend a lot of time in the archives, the age of Phyllis, which imagines the life and times of Phyllis Wheatley Peters, which is what um, I insist on calling her and now um uh many early american scholars have sort of followed uh that um i uh each poem is based on either primary or secondary text so i've been in the archives since some um, 1990 and um just when you think there's not anything else you can find something pops up you know It's a very rich repository. It's also very, uh, and then I'll pass it on to my sisters. It's also very emotional and, um, you know, sometimes can be very painful. So you have to really get your mind and your spirit right when you go into the archives. Yes.
2: Yes. Well, my, you know, for me, My body is the archive, you know, Um, sourcing, I sense and source my personal histories, my mother's personal history and her mother's and so on. And so um, I tap into that, but also the, the actual physical archive and libraries. Each image is informed by research that I've done online and in person at the at the libraries historical societies and actually I started this journey even before I was um I was out of grad school I I was going to the historical archives um looking up information in response to ignorant comments made by my classmates or information that that disturbed me or a lack of um, uh, information and curriculums in in school that I was being taught, and so um, that was one of the ways that I found out this incredible, rich, hit, long, long history of African Americans or Africans in New York City, and um, you know, like for instance, Juan Rod- Rodriguez. He's one of the first New Yorkers. He's and he's um. Puerto Rican, and he is one of the first New Yorkers. He has set up settlement in New York before the Dutch, before the British. And and so just
3: finding out information like that. Just to echo some of the sentiments already said, like Professor Jefferson said, you know, go into the archives and you're like, okay, I I feel like I found it all. And then something just blows you away. Um, I'll be honest, after, you know, I started out digging for certain things for students and curriculum in particular, but then things started to find me. Right. And it almost felt like they were ancestor driven. Like I, I would be in a space and, you know, I would just be looking at the architecture and kind of like, you know, seeing echoes of things I'd seen in the archives before. And I'd say, there's something important about this place. Let me go research this random address. And then I would come across an entire lineage, an entire story. Like, and so um. I could sit here and tell you that the process is driven by um, my intentional research all of the time. That's not true. Something else is calling. Yeah. And I- it,
2: they, they want you to find them. They want you to say their name. They yet when you start on that journey, yes, they, the spirits, they, they jump out at you. They things that you never even thought here we are. Boom. You know, they present themselves write to you as plain as day. It's some of the most incredible thing, uh, things that you would ever, ever you know, go through when you start this journey.
0: Ms. Buddington, I have another question for you. Of course, any of these questions, anybody can jump in. But my understanding is you like to describe your practice of writing found poetry and its connection to your research. What was your earliest archival discovery that led to an artistic project?
3: I started doing found poetry as kind of like a meditative practice in between Projects because it's very intense work. Um, while I, you know, read, analyze, and create projects based on very triumphant, you know, histories, there was also a lot of tragedy there, and so I needed a space to step away from the work and look at it differently. And um, the practice of found poetry is something that I've used in my journals just to like start off the morning. And I would say that the earliest um, piece that I've ever done. This, and I started this practice very recently, like probably 2019. Um, was I was reading a letter from Du Bois to his wife Nina, and um, you know she mentions in the I know I think it was from Nina to Du Bois, and she mentions in the letter like um you know Den, Benson died of a broken heart, and I'm like, okay, who who are they talking about? And it just you know I was very curious, and I remember um you know just. I, it was. I was reading so many intense things at the moment. I needed to step away from it. I started to put like the artifacts across my desk and, that i printed out and kind of play around with them. And next thing I know, in just splashing them across my desk, I found a connection because there was another artifact that I had that I was doing found poetry on that were was about drowned towns. And one of those towns was named Benson, Alabama. And I realized after doing a little digging that the person that they were talking about in the letter was actually the, um, uh, the founder's son. Like that family had established that town. And I was like, whoa, like in the middle of me doing this random found poetry practice. And then I said to myself, maybe this is something you should be doing intentionally, Erica, like maybe, you know, you take artifacts that are connected to a specific topic, movement, theme, et cetera. And you just see how they like talk to each other. And I just, you know, it's become a part of my everyday practice. So, yeah. Wow.
0: Ms. Faustine, when did you first understand your impact in bringing the Black women's many women's narratives to the consciousness of others? How would you describe that impact?
2: Um, I mean, everyone that I tell these stories to are just stunned, stunned. Sometimes they're stunned in the st- silence as one of my recent trips to Wyoming, Jackson, Wyoming, where I presented this body of work to a few people, um, uh, particularly the women, um, you know, it just goes from, wow, I did not know that, like, you know, to silence, um, people are, you could tell they're thinking, they're trying to make sense of it all. Um, Once I was telling someone on a subway and a a man interjected and, and he said, that is not true. There was no slavery in New York. There was, you know, so there's, there's a small, small denial in some because we weren't taught this in school. We weren't, we weren't taught, um the incredible rich history and legacy of not only enslaved people but f- free african americans but um the the story of you know venus Hottentot and Tot, and delia which is really more and more coming forward to the forefront is still people are still just shocked and amazed you know so um but there was one instance where uh, a little girl, she came to one of my, uh, my shows. It was part of a group show with her family. And she she didn't, even though she didn't know all of the history, She the images were so captivating to her. Um, she said, did you really go to all those places? You know, she thought it was Photoshop. And I was like, no, it's not Photoshop." I actually went to all these places and I could see that I had, you know, turned on something in her brain, you know, something that she would never be taught in school until probably college, if even then. So, um, yeah, people are just uh, incredibly blown away by it all.
0: Yeah, I was. (laughs) I was one of those people. (laughs) Professor Jeffers, continuing the question I asked Ms. Flustein. It is not only the many histories of black women, but how we are expected to tell those stories. Can you talk about how you brought the family stories and the historical stories together in love songs and why it was important to include both? You're muted.
1: I keep doing that. (laughs) Um, I think that For me, you know, I, I was very um, uh, struck by what uh, what Sister Nona uh, said about her body being an archive, mm-hmm. and I think that um, for for many people, when you know, yeah. for example, I'm sort of a bridge between the right, you know, the the creative writing world and the scholarly world. I'm an elected member of the American Antiquarian Society, and that's, you know, kind of dusty, right? <laughs> but but um, but I think that when people think of the archives, they always think of papers. And there's a there's a place in the novel, and I'm coming to a point, there's a place in the novel where Uncle Root says to Ailey when we speak of history, we speak of living people or something like that. And so the the, the the body is an archive. The spirit is an archive. The land is an archive. And so what I wanted to do was to write, I mean, when you first set out writing a novel, you just kind of get in where you fit in. And then it's not until nearly for me, right until I was finishing that I, that I could look back and say, okay, these are the things that are happening. So what I wanted to do was to tell the story, an intersecting story of a particular piece of land, according to the known history, the received narrative and the narrative of this Afro-Indigenous family. And so it was very important to me because for me as an Afro-Indigenous person who identify, you know, who is African American forward as a as a dark brown skinned woman, it, it was very important for me to tell a story that not many people knew, which was the Afro Indigenous, the non-romantic part. Of an Afro Indigenous um, story, and how, but that's lost. You don't, you don't really um, know everything, and that's a that's a hurting thing. That's a hurting place, and so what I wanted to do is fill in those those sort of blanks that history had left out.
2: Oh, one, one more, uh, interjection real quick, uh, correction on Ron, uh, Juan Rodriguez. He was Dominican, not Puerto Rican. I'm sorry about that. A big difference. And also, um, uh, Marsha Peterson. She was also featured on, um, I think it was, oh gosh, someone had put it in here. It's in the, it's in the notes. If you, if you look, not only was a PBS documentary, but, um, something, it's another series called, uh, secrets of the dead, secrets of the dead. So which is also, I think could be found on PBS. So That's Martha Fantastic. Peterson. Yes.
0: So we did get a question from, uh, one of our guests, uh, who'd like to know how your own families and I'm gonna ask this of everybody. Um, how your own families and family histories have impacted your fuel system.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, as I said, with those images um, taken at the Leverett's house, you know, my mother, both my parents are from North Carolina. Um, I, I often say they actually got, they they had to get off the slave ships in North Carolina. We go back so deep. Um, and And so certainly that history um, my mother's family, uh, she was, she was almost like a, a you know, she oftentimes told um, us stories about slavery, told, handed down from her um, foremothers, her great grandmother um, on the uh, people on the plantation. Um, and so I, from a small child growing up and hearing these stories definitely informed me to work in the narrative. So, I, I mean, I had no either choice, either I was going to be a writer or a photographer. And so definitely um, my slave, uh, my, my Southern family um, who were enslaved, um, certainly informed that was also um, coming to New York and finding this, you know, being born and raised in New York, finding
3: this rich history, definitely. Um, so I mean, for me, my I would say both my parents have been a huge influence. Uh, my dad used to have this huge vanilla folder like filled with poetry. And all of the poetry was either about love for my mama or um, you know, black history. And I remember he tell me, you know, I need to be around when you read these. And I'm like, I'm gonna read them <laughs> whether or not you're around. And you know, I had questions and you know, I'd come to them and I'd ask these questions like, what well, what do you mean by this? Or who's this person in your poem that you're writing about? A very inquisitive child. And they were always, always open to answer. Like, I think my dad brought, um, Ivan Sertima's work to me, at, like, at a very young age. Like, they came before us. And even my mother... Um, was just, you know, adamant about everything around us being reflective of our history and who we were. So from the paintings on the wall to if we bought Santa Claus at the dollar store, like she was painting him black, like that's, that's how my mama was, um, you know, and she introduced me to Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston. And after I'd read the work, I was like, well, what else did she do? And then I learned about her as an anthropologist. And so, you know what I mean? So I think, um, because they were always there to answer the questions. Um, I never, they were my archive. Like that, that's literally it. They were my archive, my first archive, and they still are. So that's how they influenced me.
1: Well, we're running out of time. So I'll say what Sister Erica said. <laughs> um, and so. Uh, I think I'm supposed to end. Yeah,
0: so I think, yes. So um, Dr. Elizabeth Alexander has said, it is always the right thing to conclude with poems. (laughs) So Professor Jeffers, if you...